The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Well, let's go to God's Word together. We are going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 as we're continuing our study in God's Word. Chapter 9, we're looking at verses 15 through 27. Last week, if you were not here, we covered the first 14 verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going through the whole book of Corinthians from beginning to end. That's how Paul wrote it, just like a letter. You'd write to a friend of yours, start in the beginning, go to the end, and that's the way it needs to be read in context. So that's what we're doing. I seem like I'm a little loud on the volume, so I don't want to hurt your ears because I'm going to start to raise my voice and a pound in the pulpit. So maybe we need to do a little adjustment just for your mercy. Okay, good. <laughs> Thanks. Um, so let's go ahead and look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I got some introductory matters that I want to have us think through before we start looking at the text together, 15 through 27. First is a, a question for you, or being the teacher that I was for years, I'd say a pop quiz, but anyway, uh, you don't need to write this down. But if, you've, if you're a Christian and you've been a Christian for a while and Say maybe you've been a believer the last 15, 20 years, and you're kind of familiar with what's going on in the evangelical world a little bit in terms of trends and what's popular and uh, popular speakers, what books are popular. I'd say the last 15 to 25 years maybe. If, when we get into 1 Corinthians 9, especially 15 to 27, um, if you read through that passage and you were familiar, and if I were to ask you what, in light of popular Christian culture, what does 1 Corinthians 9, 15 to 27, what's familiar about that to a lot of Christians? Uh, for many people, uh, something very clear would jump out of the page. Maybe not for you, but uh, maybe so, if I were to ask you that. When we go to 1 Corinthians 9, 15 through 27, what is really familiar about this passage or what should you think of? And here's the answer, actually. Uh, particularly in verses 20 to 22, and we're going to get to this, as we go through the text, 20 to 22 is actually uh, the hallmark, the proof text, the main theological foundation for the modern church growth movement. Uh, this passage is kind of their baby. Entire books have been written on really just the implications of verses 20 to 22. Uh, if you're not familiar with that, that, that is totally true. And if you're familiar with some of these church growth books that have been getting pumped out for the last several decades, they'll refer to this passage, 1 Corinthians 9, either quoting part of it or just making their case and then putting the reference after it, 1 Corinthians 9, 20 through 22, as a proof text of how we're supposed to do church, how we're supposed to do ministry. And to summarize it, uh, they would say where Paul says, to the Jew, I became a Jew. To the Gentile, I became a Gentile. To the weak I became weak so that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men so that I may by all means save some. And the argument is that Paul is incredibly pragmatic. And he was into, as he dealt with unbelievers, basically Paul's strategy or methodology was just give them what they want. Talk to an unbeliever, find out what they like, find out what their preferences are. And very important, find out what they don't like and don't do that, whatever you do as a Christian. And you accommodate the unbeliever and all of his ways and thinking and uh, worldviews, whatever, as you interact with them. So you 
acquiesce to basically all of their needs, desires, aspirations, whatever, because you don't want to hurt their feelings. I am not kidding. This is a condensed version of uh, modern church growth philosophy, and it's based on this verse. And then usually there's actually no exegesis done of these passages, and rarely, if ever, is there a context uh, where they talk about what came before verse 20 or what comes after. And it, it is a proof text for doing church growth in a very worldly humanistic way and the goal is to try to get your church to grow bigger and bigger and get more people to come to your church i know this for a fact because i've lived through it at a couple of churches as a pastor on staff when i was in the whirlwind in the midst of in the vortex of church growth crazy ology that was just taking over the christian church and the christian world and i was a on senior staff at a church and this was the proof text that was used as we were going through that metamorphosis in our very midst, and when I was to preach, I was told that, well, the, you know, unbelievers, they don't like ties because ties are intimidating. I, you probably feel intimidated with me standing up here with a tie on. I can tell. I can just see it in the face of several of you. But anyway, I'm not kidding. This is in several books. And so I was told if you wear a tie when you're preaching, that's intimidating and it's condescending and uh, people will feel more comfortable if you don't wear a tie. And so I was told I need to jettison the tie and I can't wear a suit, and I had to wear a Hawaiian shirt. I am not kidding, true story. So I wore my Hawaiian shirt and got rid of the tie and preached my message, <laughs> as I was told to do. Uh, so that was just one example. We've got to get rid of the, uh, the organ because that's, you know, archaic, and unbelievers don't like uh, uh, archaic musical instruments. They like the, the blaring, loud, screeching electric guitar, of course, right? So we've got to have that and. That's just a few examples that literally went on in this transformation of the church I was working at. And, and the proofed text for it all literally was this passage. We've we got to give unbelievers what they want. As a matter of fact, you know, unbelievers, they're kind of intimidated and convicted by the Bible. Therefore, when we go to church, we, we can't have Bibles laying around in the pews and whatever. Because an unbeliever, if they come visit us on Sunday, they might see the Bible. As a matter of fact, we need to change the name of our church so we deliberated weeks and months and months about, you know, what are we going to rename the church? And the dictate was given based on 1 Corinthians 9 that, well, whatever we do, the new name would come up. We, it can't have the word church in it because that's too religious for unbelievers. And it can't have the word like grace or cross or um, Jesus or whatever. Or, yeah, and I remember you can't have the words like grace or Bible or fellowship in it. And so I'm thinking, you know, someday if I get to plant a church, I'm going to call it Grace Bible Fellowship. Uh, so... Being a part of this discussion, very frustrating, but again, this is a real, this is a reality. I mean, this is a one way that 1 Corinthians 9 is relevant for us as a local church body. How do we properly interpret and understand the Bible? That's important. That's relevant. Got to read it in context. And also, how do we interact with other local churches around us who have different methodologies and philosophies of how to do church and other brothers and sisters in Christ in terms of uh, different ways they interpret and apply the Bible. So this is very important. There's a practical lesson for us in addition to what Paul's argument is through the passage, which is what we're going to camp on and focus on. But I, I needed that's kind of a footnote uh, to the sermon today. You need to be aware of that. We can't be ignorant. This has taken over the Christian church in terms of philosophy and methodology around the world. So now you can kind of listen for it when if you hear it. That Basically, in light of what Paul said, we need to give unbelievers what they want. We can't hurt their feelings. And we're going to see in context that is not what Paul was talking about at all. So let's go ahead and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 15 
to 27. Uh, unfortunately, there, there's a chapter break between chapter 8, verse 13, and chapter 9, verse 1. And I, I say that's unfortunate because verse 13 goes with chapter 9. As a matter of fact, it's kind of unfortunate that we have to break chapter 8 and 9 up into several weeks and sermons because Paul, it's one very tight argument that Paul is making in chapter 8 and 9 together. There's a very tight continuity, and we've we got to remember that. That's why we have to review. Very basically, uh, Paul's addressing a new problem in the Corinthian church. This church was, was pretty messed up, and it was hardly five years old. And it was messed up because it had people that attended it. There were people in it, and people are sinners, and even Christians are sinners. So it needed Paul's uh, wisdom, his apostolic authority, his biblical teaching, uh, his pastoral heart to try to mess, uh, straighten out some of their problems, but also answer their questions. And so the question in chapter 8, uh, you had Christians not getting along, Corinthians not getting along. You had stronger Christians looking down on weaker Christians in the Corinthian congregation um, and judging them, these weaker Christians. And so uh, Paul kind of rebukes the stronger, arrogant Christians who are proud of their knowledge, proud of their theology. They probably took, took a Sunday night seminar and took Greek and Hebrew. They've finished that already. So they're, they're puffed up. And they're looking down their nose at the weaker, more uneducated, unsophisticated Christians who sometimes think wrong and act wrong as a result. And so the rebuke in chapter 8 is verse 9 where he says, Now take care, you Corinthian Christians, that this liberty or freedom of yours that you have in Christ in gray areas does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. So that's the command. Deprive yourself of your liberty in gray areas for the good of other believers. That's the main point of chapter 8. That's his exhortation. Now, some of the puffed-up Corinthians probably were a little offended and taken aback when they heard this from Paul. How, how dare you say that? Who are you, Paul? And then that's why he writes chapter 9. He says, well, <laughs> I'm an apostle with God-given authority from Jesus, the risen Lord. That's who I am. And also, I'm the pastor who brought you the gospel by which you became a Christian. That's who I am. So it's kind of a double argument that Paul's weaving through chapter 9 because we learned early on there were some Corinthian Christians who had a bad negative attitude towards the Apostle Paul and they had a preference for Peter and Apollos and sophisticated rhetoric of the Greek philosophers. And Paul didn't fit that mold. And some of the Corinthians who got the gospel from Paul and some of the Corinthians who got godly counsel from Paul and some of the Corinthians whose father, spiritual father, was Paul, they began to become critical of their pastor. They began to become critical of an apostle. And that began to fester. And you can see it all throughout 1 Corinthians. So Paul's addressing issue by issue, but every chance he gets, he's also reestablishing his apostolic authority and reminding them, you're arrogant. Quit being arrogant. Quit being hypercritical, quit being divisive. And remember who I am. I was ordained as an apostle by Jesus himself for the good of the church. So that argument weaves its way all throughout, actually, chapter 9. We saw that uh, last week. So Paul says, deprive yourself of your liberty for the good of weaker Christians. And then in verse 13, he says, 
you know, I'm not going to tell you to do something that I don't do myself. I actually practice what I preach. That's verse 13 of chapter 8. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble. If I'm interacting with a weaker Christian, then I'm going to deprive myself of my liberties in gray areas. That's verse 13. And then some of them were probably aghast by that. Oh, really? Who do you think you are, Paul? And then that begins chapter 9. Well, I'll tell you who I am. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? It goes on with several other uh, rhetorical questions and arguments establishing his authority. I'll tell you who I am because he knows these Corinthians. By the way, you would think that Paul solves the problem of Corinthian Christians who got saved under Paul's ministry of being critical of him, but it, it didn't solve the problem. That's what's really sad. Second Corinthians is probably the most discouraging book in the entire New Testament. It's really sad. Because, you know, a couple of years later, these Corinthians, they have just basically turned on Paul. It's pretty vicious. But anyway, he didn't see that coming yet when he's writing 1 Corinthians. Um, so am I not an apostle? And then, um, and then he goes, he uses himself as an example. Okay, Christians, the, the Christ-like thing to do is to deny yourself of exor- the right to exercise your liber- Christian liberties when it comes to gray areas if the gray area is going to cause a weaker Christian to stumble. Deprive yourself. That's what Jesus would do. That's what I have done as an apostle. And then Paul raises the standard a little higher. And that's chapter 9. That was verses 1 through 14. He says, and not only deny yourself in the area of gray areas, or the matter of gray areas, but also be like me and deny yourself when it is necessary in the area, not of gray areas, but in areas that are actually rights so paul went on for 14 verses to say about 10 different ways that as an apostle and as your pastor and full-time minister i had the right to be compensated financially when i was in your midst i had that right according to culture according to universal custom according to old testament scripture and according to the command of the lord jesus christ you should have paid me that's not a gray area that was black and white Peter probably got, yeah, Peter got paid, Apollos got paid, other full-time ministers of Jesus got paid and compensated. And Paul says, so deny yourself in gray areas where you have liberties for the good of others. Not only that, take it a step higher if it's necessary. Deny yourself in black and white areas for the good of others that they may be edified. Isn't that amazing? That is not easy to do. That is hard to do because here in America we have been trained and ingrained, not just here in America, and because of our very self-centered, sinful human nature, our inclination is to demand our rights, right? I want my rights. I want my rights. I deserve my rights. And Paul is arguing the exact opposite. Deny yourself of your liberties in gray areas and deny yourself of your rights in black and white areas when it is to the advancement and benefit of the gospel. So that's really his argument as he develops it in chapter 9. So let's go ahead and look at verses 15 through 27. After telling them, like I said, nine or ten different ways, you should have paid me, you were obligated to pay me, I deserve to get paid, I should have got paid, it's black and white, I should have been paid. And then, But he says, but you didn't pay me, I didn't want your money, I didn't want to cause anybody to stumble, I didn't want people to think I was doing it for the money like some false teachers have done. And after arguing that about ten different times, if I sounded a wee bit like a broken record last week, 
saying that Paul deserved to be paid, Paul deserved to be paid, Paul deserved to be paid. That's not because I made that up. It was in all 14 verses that I read. We're just exegeting the scriptures. We let the word of God speak for itself. And that's what we need to do as we're studying the Bible. And so there's a a transition. I would say chapter uh, 9, verse 15, if if you wanted to know, that verse 15 is the pivotal verse in chapter 9. It's kind of the nexus or the turning point or the crescendo or uh, the culmination uh, that really sets the context for what came before and what comes after. And that's, let's go ahead and look at it. Verse 15, actually, verse 15 through 18. And what I've done is taken 15 through 27 and uh, divided it into three main parts so that we can kind of digest it a little bit earlier. The title of the sermon today I put there, Denying Self in Ministry, because that's, that's really the theme of chapter 8 and 9. If you wanted to summarize what I've been preaching for four weeks on these two chapters, it's deny yourself, Christian, for the good of others. And deny yourself for the glory of Christ. Pretty simple, isn't it? And we'll talk a little bit more about that on point number three. But we're going to look at first on denying self in ministry the way the Apostle Paul did. He was a, a wonderful model for us to follow. It's nice to have the Apostle Paul as a model for Christian living and Christian ministry. And the reason that's nice is because, well, who would we say is the greatest model? We'd say Jesus, right? Just be like Jesus. That's kind of intimidating and scary. Just be like Jesus, really? Uh, he was perfect. He was God in a body. How in the world can we be like Jesus? Well, we're supposed to. We're supposed to be Christ-like. So when that command you see in Scripture is be like Jesus, what it really looks like is be like the Apostle Paul because the Apostle Paul lived like Jesus. There's a human, there's a sinful, fallen, finite human model for us to follow as the Apostle Paul. And that's what he told the Corinthians and some of his other churches uh, be examples of me as I am of Christ. So we need to emulate Paul's attitude and his practice as Christians in our daily living and also in the world uh, and in ministry and also how we interact with other, believer, uh, other believers. So let's go ahead and look at these three points. Uh, first, 18, 15 through 18, uh, Paul denied himself in light of his calling. In light of his calling as an apostle, he just established over 14 verses again that he was an apostle. Why do you have to say 14 times, 14 different ways to the Corinthians that he was an apostle of Jesus? Because the Corinthians were arrogant, critical of Paul, slow to hear. And Paul knew if I just say this once, it's probably not going to sink in. So I better say it 14 times. And he did. And then he makes this transition, talking about his apostleship and denying himself for their behalf. He says in verse 15, but I have used none of these things, none of these rights and privileges that I just told you about, that I deserve, that are rightfully mine for my hard work. I didn't exercise those rights. I didn't get paid from you. And I am not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty either. I don't expect any of you, after I write this letter, to to send me a check in the mail. I don't want that. That's not my point. I don't want that. He even is extreme in not wanting it. He says, for it would be better for me to die than have any man Make my boast an empty one. I don't want to get paid. If you Corinthians try to pay me for the work that I did, that's going to mess everything up. I'd rather die and go to heaven, actually. I'd rather have rewards from Jesus in heaven than from you in the form of cash. And uh, at the end there, he makes this point, point about boasting. Boy, if you guys pay me and I accept that, then that just ruins the boast that I had when I ministered among you, this boast. He brings up boasting a few times. Uh, it brings it up in verse 16. And he's boasting about a reward that he was receiving at the time and a reward that he would also receive in the future. This is not a bad boasting. This is a good boasting. This is a positive boasting that Paul's talking about. 
He wasn't being arrogant. He said, I'm glad I didn't get paid from you because now I can boast about something specific that he's going to tell us. In verse 16, he says, for if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. I want to continue to boast, uh, or in other words, what he means is be proud in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he had the privilege to bring the gospel for the first time into Corinth, a pagan city, and to do it without charging anybody money and to do it by sustaining himself through hard work, and to do that ministry for a year and a half, and to see the seed of the gospel planted, and to see it take root, and to see some people believe, and to see a lot of Christians start growing, to see a church develop. And he wasn't paid for any of that. And actually, he had nothing really to do with it, because he didn't invent the gospel. He wasn't the Savior. He was a weak sinner. He was just a broken vessel that was faithful and obedient. And he just stood there and did his job in obedience to God, and he saw God do these transforming eternal works in these pathetic, sinful people. And he got to watch on the sidelines and see this great work of God and this harvest that was reaped and now he's celebrating and he's boasting about it in other words giving glory to christ that he was allowed this very unique privilege to be a part of laying the foundation of the church in corinth that is his boast that i was able to be a part of this and i wasn't receiving money for it and my reward is you the fruit of my ministry and part of his boast and his, re- his, re- his reward, the reward that he's going to receive in the future for his faithfulness to the lord jesus christ so that's what he's boasting in He's boasting in the work that God did. His boast is in Christ. Paul says that in his other epistles. May I never boast in anything except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is Paul's one boast. The greatness of the gospel and the work that it produces in the lives of sinners. And that's what he is rejoicing in. And then he talks about, um, I am under compulsion. Very interesting in verse 16. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. For I am under compulsion to preach the gospel. It's kind of almost like Paul is saying, or actually, he, he actually literally says this in verse 17. I did not volunteer, by the way, to be an apostle. Did you know that? He didn't volunteer. He was called by God to be an apostle. He was commissioned by the God of the universe to be an apostle. Uh, Galatians chapter 1 verse 1 says that he was chosen not by man or any human agency or any human committees, but by God and the Lord Jesus Christ and only God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was actually uh, selected by God, even predetermined by God to be an apostle. Paul had his way. He wouldn't even be a Christian. He'd still be a Pharisee killing Christians. So he, he is not doing the apostolic ministry voluntarily. He's just going along trying to persecute Christians. In Acts chapter 9, he gets knocked off his horse or whatever by the Lord Jesus Christ himself and blinded and judged and rebuked by the creator of the universe. What are you doing? Persecuting my church. And then God saved him and then God commissioned him and called him to be an apostle. And he told him in his original commissioning, you're going to be a servant for me. You're going to be a servant to the Gentiles. You're going to be an apostle. You're going to speak for the Lord Jesus Christ, which is a great thing. But he also said, and you know what? You're going to suffer for it. You're going to endure persecution for it. And Paul had two options, to disobey God or to obey God. But he didn't volunteer for it. As a matter of fact, he's like Jeremiah the prophet. Jeremiah said, Jeremiah was called by God to have a prophetic ministry for years and decades, to speak the word of God to a recalcitrant, hardened people in a very difficult situation. It wasn't rosy at all. And Jeremiah says, I didn't volunteer for this to be a prophet. I I wish I could quit and resign, but I can't. And then 
he says that he was chosen to be a prophet from his mother's womb. God chose him. That would be the same as the Apostle Paul. Selected by God, uh, not a volunteer, and a mandate from Almighty God. Therefore, he is under compulsion to preach the gospel. So if I don't preach the gospel, uh, who cares if I get paid or I don't get paid? That has nothing to do with it. I didn't even volunteer for this. This is a mandate from Almighty God. And if I don't preach, he says, for woe is me, verse 16, woe is me. That means I will endure divine chastening if I disobey. If I'm, if I'm like Jonah and run away, what God has called me to do, God, he will chase me down. He will send a big fish after me if he has to, a wind, a plant, a, a, the waves, whatever. I don't want to be like Jonah. I don't want to undergo divine chastening from Almighty God for being disobedient to the call to be an apostle and a preacher advancing the gospel. That's why he says in verse 17, uh, for I do this if I did this voluntarily, I'd have a reward, but if against my will... I have a stewardship entrusted to me. I'm just a steward of what God has called me to do. I need to be faithful. This is his precious goods that belong to Jesus. I need to be faithful in representing it. Verse 18, what then is my reward? My reward is not getting money from you for preaching. That's not a reward. My reward is that when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge. That's the beauty and the reward. The true reward for the apostle Paul is to be able to preach the gospel for free without asking for compensation, and then just watch God do His work. And also part of that reward is trusting God, that God would provide for His needs. And God did time and time again, met His needs when He was in Corinth for a year and a half, even though the Corinthians didn't pay Him a dime. And God sustained the Apostle Paul. That was part of His reward. Look at Second Corinthians chapter 11, uh, because it's a, a really important passage in light of this context uh paul is reminiscing now a couple of years later this issue still keeps coming up on whether paul should get paid or not and in second corinthians 11 starting at verse 8 he reminds them as again they're still being critical of him he said you know what i didn't take any money from you guys i was faithful in dispensing the gospel you got saved you became a christian Verse 8, I, as a matter of fact, I robbed other churches. Now he's using that figuratively. I took money from other churches. I took money from the Philippians to sustain my ministry while I was a pastor here in Corinth. I robbed other churches by taking wages from them or other churches to serve you, the churches of Macedonia. And when I was present with you and when I was in need, I was not a burden to any one of you. I wasn't coming and asking money from you or trying to tap into the benevolence fund or demanding my rights that I should be paid because I'm full-time staff. I didn't do any of that. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. And in everything, I kept myself from being a burden to you and will continue to do so. Very important in terms of Paul's ministry to the Corinthians. What then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. And the point being, again, Paul's just hammering away that, you know what, if you want to be a spiritual, obedient, Christ-like Christian, quit talking about your rights. Deny yourself in deference to other believers, out of service, out of love, out of true Christ-like concern for them. But the Corinthians, as we know, they had a problem with being self-centered all the time. So, in light of 15 through 18, Paul denied himself in light of his calling as a unique 
apostle. Let's go on to point number two. As Paul keeps talking about denying himself and trying to set that very high standard for all Christians to follow as we live in deference to others. Number two, Paul denied himself in light of his audience. In light of his audience. So he's telling the... Primarily he's talking to the strong Christians who are judgmental. Saying, you know what? You need to be in tune with who's around you, who, who is living in proximity with you, who's in your congregation. Do you even know these people? Do you know what their strengths are? Do you know what their weaknesses are? Do you know what their background is? Do you know what their struggles are? Do you know what causes them to stumble? Do you even care about these people that are around you? Well, you need to. They're your brothers and sisters in Christ. You need to know your audience. You need to know who you're dealing with. You can't just uh, plow through people like a, a steamroller and run people over with utter disregard to their uh, cultural sensitivities, their background, their convictions, their weaknesses, their uh, strengths. So that's the theme of 19 through 23. You need to know your audience as a Christian. We all need to. For though I am free from all men, Paul was free from all men. He said that in chapter 9, verse 1. I am free. Am I not free? He was free. The reason he was free of all men is that he belonged to Jesus Christ. Jesus was his master. So Jesus owned Paul. And so the only authority that Paul had to answer to ultimately was Jesus Christ and God's truth. That's what he meant when he said, I'm free from all men. My motive is driven by scriptural truth given to me by the Lord Jesus Christ who owns me. And if Jesus wants me to die, I will die. If he wants me to deny myself, I will deny myself. I will do whatever the Lord Jesus wants me to do. I'm free from all men. In other words, I don't cater to the whims and the demands of human beings because human beings are inherently evil and sinful. So I'm not just going to be driven by the agenda of human beings. When it comes to ministry and living like a Christian, wow, that principle flies in the face of much of modern-day church growth where we are told to accommodate and acquiesce to the demands and the agendas of unbelievers and just humans in general. And Paul says, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not a slave to human agendas. I'm a slave only to the Lord Jesus Christ. I am free. Nevertheless, I have made myself a slave to all. I'm a slave to no man, but I've made a slave. I've made myself a slave to all people. It seems like a paradox or contradiction. But all he's saying is, I'm a slave to no man because... Jesus is my master and I will do only what he wants me to do, even if it offends people or hurts people's feelings, or even if they reject me, even if they get mad at me, even if they chase me out of town, even if they stone me almost to death, even if they beat me to a bloody pulp five times with 39 lashes, even if they throw me into the sea, even if they try to kill me, even if they mock me, it doesn't matter. I'm only going to do what the Lord Jesus says and not cave to human agendas. I am a slave to no man. Jesus is my master. Nevertheless, I have made myself by choice, by his volition, to be a slave to all. What does he mean by that? That means he's just willing. He's going to, every human being that he came across, he saw himself as their servant. You know what? Mr. Miss, you don't owe me. The Lord Jesus owns me, but you know what? I want to be your servant. I want to be your slave. I want to serve you. He knew that every human being was made in God's image. He knew that every human being was a candidate for the gospel and salvation. So everywhere he went, Paul saw every human being as an opportunity to evangelize, to pray for, uh, to give the gospel to, that they might repent and be saved. 
Paul was a, a wonderful, compassionate evangelist, and that's how he viewed people. He viewed people first and foremost as spiritual beings, spiritual uh, beings made in God's image who needed the gospel and needed salvation. And, and that grieved his heart and his soul of the, the prospect of people rejecting Christ and people not being saved and going to hell. So much so that in chapter 9 of Romans and chapter 10 of Romans, he thought about Jews that he knew, that he grew up with, that probably were his friends and associates and colleagues at one time before he got saved as a Pharisee. And now that he's saved, he's thinking about his own Jewish people. And he said it broke his heart, at the, th- the fact that they were not saved, that they didn't believe in Christ. And he prayed to God, God, I wish I'd be willing to be condemned to hell if you might save those Jews in my place. I mean, that, that is unbelievable. That is beyond my comprehension to pray that kind of a prayer. God, send me to hell if you can, that you might save my seven unsaved siblings who are not Christians. I have seven unsaved siblings in my family. I've never prayed that prayer. Because I don't know if I could pray that and mean it sincerely. But in Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 10, Paul meant that sincerely. That was his evangelistic heart. And that's why he is driven the way that he is, that he literally was willing to make himself a slave to every person. How can I serve you? What is your greatest spiritual need? There's a Shell gas station over here. Fire Church. And so I was thinking about this morning. And the same lady works there. Sweet lady behind the counter. I'm thinking, uh, I wonder what kind of ministry and impact GBF, let's see, there's about 213 people here today, can have on this lady because she's here every Sunday. I don't know if she's a Christian. She's very nice. I wonder if we can have a witness on her and change her destiny for eternity. If we view her, if we view ourselves actually as a slave to her. That needs to be our attitude towards, towards anybody. I mean, start with your mailman. Your attitude towards your mail carrier. Maybe it's a woman. Oh, they're terrible. They're always giving us the neighbor's mail. They're always late. Start thinking of them the way Paul thought of all people. I'm going to make my mailman, my carrier, my. I'm going to be a slave to my mailman. I'm going to be his servant. I'm going to have. I'm going to ask him if he wants a cold diet coke the next time he comes to the door, or ask him if he'd like to take my. If I, if he'd ask, if he'd like me to take my Doberman Pinscher off the front porch when he comes up to put the mail, in. I mean that would be thoughtful. And put a muzzle on my dog. Would that help you? But anyway, this is how Paul viewed people. I'm a slave to all. Why do you do this, Paul? So that I might win the more. Win them what? Win them to salvation. How do we know he's talking about salvation? Well, because he's talking about the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. Nine times, if, you have, if you've been paying attention, nine times from 12 to 27, Paul mentions the gospel. The gospel, verse 12. The gospel, verse 14. The gospel, verse 16. The gospel, verse 16 again. The gospel, verse 18, three times. The gospel, verse 23, preached. He's meaning the gospel, verse 27. Uh, one of the points of emphasis here is preaching the gospel, doing it effectively, denying yourself out of love and service to others that you might be more effective as a Christian and an evangelist so that no one will stumble over you and your methodology. The gospel. So I'm a servant to all that I might win more. Being that he mentions the gospel nine times, let me ask you, what is the gospel? Think in your mind for a second. Because it's all about the gospel. 
The gospel was the priority for Paul. I'm a slave to all men because of the gospel. I do what I do because, because of the gospel. I don't receive pay from you because of the gospel. I obey Jesus, my master, because of the gospel. The gospel drives his life. What is the gospel? You can't join and become a member at GBF unless you know the gospel. You can't get baptized unless you know the gospel. So that's the question I always ask people. You want to get baptized? What's the gospel? You want to join a church? What's the gospel? You've got to be able to clearly articulate it. And we know 1 Corinthians. Paul's going to, uh, he gives the classic definition of 1 Corinthians 15, where he says, this is the gospel. If I were to ask you right now, what is the gospel? I do that in every seminary class I teach. I don't care what the class is. Apologetics, Genesis, homiletics, first class period. Okay, guys, pop quiz, get out a blank piece of paper. You pastors and pastors wannabe, or pastor wannabes, whatever the plural is. Write down a definition of the gospel, take it back. And inevitably, I got somebody, the gospel's kind of muddy, it's fuzzy, it's cluttered. And a lot of them get it down, but it's like kind of scary. Wow, you're a pastor and you can't even articulate. Whoa. So we've got to review this even as Christians. We're not going to assume anything. So the gospel, according to Paul, is that it's Christ died for sins. According to Christ. So it starts with Jesus. He's the gospel, right? Gospel means what? Good news. That's why the gospel begins with the name Jesus. That's good news, isn't it? Jesus means God saves. That is good news. I've asked experienced Bible teachers before, what's the gospel? And <laughs> one time a brother floored me, a friend of mine. Well, God is a God of wrath, and everybody's a sinner, and nobody, and everybody deserves hell. No, 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 no. Which was all true. And then he was done. I said, "Are you finished?" He said, "Yeah." I said, "Wow, you didn't say one thing that was good news. Your message was all scary." Gospel means good news. There was no good news. I, yeah, you got the bad news, but you need the good news to save you from all of your bad news. Oh, yeah. And you didn't even say anything about it. You didn't even mention Jesus' name. Oh, yeah. So that's why Paul says, the gospel, the good news, Christ. Jesus is the good news. Christ died, absorbed the Father's wrath. Christ died for sin as a substitute for sinners. Jesus himself. Why did Jesus come into the world? He told us why he came in the world. The Son of Man came into the world, not to judge people, according to John 3. He came in the world to seek and to save those who are lost. Amen? Jesus is on a, a rescue mission of sinners. That's why he came. And then in Mark ten forty five, he also gave another reason why he came into the world. The Son of Man came into the world not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to save sinners and to serve all humanity. We need to do the same in terms of service to other people. So we, like Paul, we need to make all people our masters, or we need to be slave or servant to every human being we ever come across. And so he gives, then he gives examples of that by way of illustration. For example, I deny my rights when I deal with any person for the sake of the gospel. I deny my rights and my Christian liberties when I deal with unbelieving Jews. And that's what he says in verse 20. To the Jews I became as a Jew. To every time I come across unbelieving Jews, I accommodate myself. I don't compromise my theology. I don't compromise biblical methodology. But I do find a common ground that is legitimate and biblical with the crowd in the audience that I'm dealing with. And if it requires me to deny myself as a Christian, to deny myself my rights 
in gray areas and even in other areas. I will do that if I have an opportunity in a venue to share the gospel in that community. And I did that with the Jews. And so we know Paul's pattern, even though Jesus specifically said, you are the apostle to the Gentiles. Yes, Lord, I understand. Nevertheless, according to the book of Acts, as was Paul's custom, says the scripture, Anytime he went into a new town, before he went to the Gentiles, he first went to the unbelieving Jews. And he, he became a Jew as unto the Jews, even though he was a Christian now and not a legalistic, pharisaical, Old, Old Testament-only Jew. He would become a Jew to the unbelieving Jews. In other words, he'd go into the synagogue. He was welcomed in the synagogue as a legitimate rabbi. And he would teach as a rabbi in the synagogue in an appropriate manner. He would wear the appropriate attire. It's like when I went to Israel and went down to the Wailing Wall. And if you wanted to approach the Wailing Wall, you had to put the little thing on your head. I'm not Jewish, but I don't want to offend all the Jews and all the Israelites around, especially the ones holding machine guns. Yeah, I'll, I'll take that yarmulke, yes, and when I pray at that Wailing Wall. But it was being sensitive to their culture. I had the right and liberty not to wear one on my head. I was not Jewish. I don't believe you have to wear a thing on your head to keep from offending God. So I denied my right. And that's what Paul said. So he would accommodate himself to the Jews and become a Jew. He'd go into the synagogue. He would, he would be a rabbi. He would teach from Old Testament scripture. Uh, other ways he accommodated Jews in Acts chapter 16. He goes through Lystra and the area of Iconium. And he, he meets this young man who's a great prospect for seminary. And his name is Timothy. And he takes Timothy on his ministry team. And he takes Timothy on the mission field. And But Paul knows, man, we're going to be entering a lot of zones of unbelieving Jews. And Timothy, your mom was Jewish. And she's a believer. But your dad's a Greek. And so you never got circumcised. And that's going to be offensive to all the Jews around here who know that your dad's a Greek. And so, Timothy, you need to get circumcised. And so Paul circumcised Timothy for the sole purpose that he might not offend unbelieving Jews. And there was nothing unscriptural or unbiblical for doing that. And that didn't mean that by circumcising Timothy, that didn't mean that Paul believed he needed to be circumcised to become a Christian. He wasn't compromising the gospel. It was clear. So Paul would do that when he was in the Jewish community. Acts chapter 20, the same thing. He, he's around a bunch of Jews and people are saying, Paul, people are complaining about you, these unbelieving Jews, because they're saying that you undermine the law of Moses and you don't believe in the Old Testament. Paul's like, I believe in the Old Testament. Like I remember one guy, I was at a huge conference at uh, the tables where they were selling stuff, and I went to a table, and there was a Christian guy selling stuff, and I, was, I had in my hand, just it was a New Testament, was all it was, a little New Testament. And he just starts laying into me, accusing me, yeah, you Christians that, that don't believe in the Old Testament. I'm like, what, what do you mean? Well, you got is a New Testament there. Well, yeah. Yeah, you Christians that believe only in the New Testament don't believe in the Old Testament. So he's making a false judgment, and people would do that with the Apostle Paul, based on how they saw him operate and that he's evangelizing and commiserating with unbelieving Gentiles. And so uh, believers around Paul were saying, you're becoming a stumbling block to these unbelieving Jews because they're saying this about you. And Paul said, whoa, all right. So he took four other Jewish men with him, paid their fee at the temple and went through a Jewish ritual because he knew other unbelieving Jews or critical Jews were watching so that he might not offend their sensibilities. Denying, he didn't have to do that. He was denying his rights to be a Jew among the Jews. Um, so to the Jews I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews. And he did win Jews. It's all over the book of Acts. Unbelieving Jews came to believe in Christ as a result of Paul's ministry. To those who were under the law, I acted and behaved as I was under the law. Though not myself being under the law, I didn't believe what they did. I didn't believe in salvation by works righteousness like they did. But I would still comply with the law 
where it was legitimate and biblical to do so. I even had a different understanding and interpretation of the Old Testament. Nevertheless, I wanted to be a good witness so that I might win those who are under law. And not only to the Jews that I become a Jew, to Gentiles. I would accommodate myself to the Gentiles when necessary. Verse 21, to those who are without the law. That's Gentiles. Oh, another way that Paul would probably accommodate himself to unbelieving Jews is when he was with them, he would eat kosher food. He probably loved bacon, I would imagine, once he got saved. But when he was with kosher unbelieving Jews, he probably said, oh, I'll just take the eggs. No bacon today, out of deference for them. But uh, then he's hanging out with the Gentiles, and he said, when I'm with the Gentiles, those who are without law, I act like a Gentile, that I might be a better witness. That doesn't mean commit their sins. It means act in appropriate ways that are allowed by Scripture. Though, uh, in ways that Paul might act among the Gentiles was, I mean, Jews weren't even allowed to eat out of utensils and drink out of utensils that belonged to Gentiles. Jews weren't. Not according to the Old Testament, but according to man-made Jewish legalistic pharisaical custom. You don't drink out of a Gentile's cup because he has the cooties. They aren't chosen by God. Paul knew that wasn't true. And so when he's with the Gentiles, he probably ate out of their, he ate meals with them, ate out of their utensils. They probably thought that was a breath of fresh air. Wow. Aren't you Jewish? Yeah, yeah, I am actually. Oh, you're the first Jew that's been willing to eat from my Tupperware. That's awesome. And he probably ate their food too and their pork and all these other things that Jews would not do as he's looking for a venue and opportunity to share the gospel to these Gentiles made in the image of God because he was their servant. He was their slave. He loved these people, saw them first and foremost as spiritual beings. So to those who are without the law, I live with them as though without the law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ. And so he's saying, I wasn't lawless. I was driven by a higher law, not... uh, Pharisees understanding of the Mosaic law Jesus's understanding of the Mosaic law which is actually a higher standard of living and that was the law of love not the law of legalism it was the law of love self-denial sacrificial service for the good of another that is the law of Christ so that I might win those who are without the law we know that all kinds of Gentiles got us got saved as a result of Paul's methodology And then finally, verse 22, here's his whole point. We start in chapter 8, verse 9, saying, Deny yourself in deference to the weak around you, so that you might not be a stumbling block to them. And so in verse 22 of chapter 9, he says, To the weak I became weak. You need to become weak among the weak here in the Corinthian congregation. What's he arguing? Well, you know what? Don't eat that food sacrificed to an idol. If somebody around you in your church is offended by that, deny yourself. That's the point. Look at how far he's gone to make his point and argument. There's the answer. There's weak around you, then become weak, um, whether they're saved or not saved, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I might may by all means save some. That's the summary principle of verses 19 to 23. And then verse 23 says, I do all things for the sake of what? Human opinion, human approval, the fear of man. No, it's the gospel. How refreshing is that? So that I may become a fellow partaker of it. That was his higher calling. So Paul denied himself in light of his audience. We need to do the same. And then finally, Paul denied himself in light of his sin. Verses 24 to 27. 
Do you not know? It's a rhetorical question. You, you know. Hey, Corinthians, you guys, you guys know what's coming up next January. Da, 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 da. The Olympics. The Isthmian Games. Those were held in Corinth every two to three years. They were a competitor to the Olympics in Athens, Greece. World-renowned. Apparently, there were few select people that were allowed to compete in the Isthmian Games. There was like a 10-month trial period, they tell us. And then the last month was this rigid and rigorous schedule that you had to put yourself on as an athlete if you're going to compete in the Isthmian Games in Corinth. As a matter of fact, you could be disqualified during the trial period from the Isthmian Games for various reasons. So you had to be very disciplined, regular routine, rigid in your routine in preparation for the Isthmian Games so that you wouldn't be disqualified and also so that you would compete well and also so that you would gain the prize. And the goal was to win. And they had a few games, and one of the games was just simply a foot race like we have today. So that's why it says in verse 24, uh, do you not know that those who run in a race, he's talking about where they were, they all know. They all run, but only one person receives the prize. So it is highly cherished, this prize. And people did, went out of their way to great extents to prepare for winning the prize in this race. And he says, but you as Christians, we're running the race of the Christian life, which the stakes are higher. So we should run all the more, discipline all the more, train all the more than winning an earthly prize. So Christian, run in such a way that you may win. And his whole key here, what is he telling the Corinthians? Run in such a way that you might win. Be the best Christian that you can possibly be. Be the most faithful slave of Jesus that you can possibly be. What does that mean? Be as Christ-like as you possibly can. What does that mean? I think the greatest way to be Christ-like is to deny yourself. That's probably the greatest way to summarize it. What, is, what does it mean to be Christ-like? It is to deny yourself. I didn't make that up. Jesus said it in Luke chapter 9. If you want to come after me, you need to deny yourself. Take up your cross. That means be willing to die. Deny yourself. Not love yourself. That's what the world tells us. Love yourself, love yourself, love yourself first. As a matter of fact, some evangelicals have bought into that, and it's spreading like gangrene, unfortunately. And we're being told by some Christian, well-known Bible teachers, yeah, we need to love God and love others, but you need to love yourself first. And if, if you can learn to love yourself first and cultivate loving yourself first, then you can more effectively love other people. And the Bible says no. Paul said in, in Ephesians 5, you already love yourself. I love myself. You love yourself. Just be honest. Don't deny it. No man hates himself. That's what Paul said. That's clear. We don't need to learn to love ourselves. We already do. Love others. Love Christ. Deny self not love self that's what jesus said but in order to deny and that's what you have to do to be a successful athlete if you're in the olympics and you hear the testimony of these successful athletes wow what did you do to pull off uh winning the silver medal allison felix in the 400 meters who graduated from the high school where i taught years ago well uh from the time i was three i was in training and I was accountable. None of these successful athletes do what they do without accountability, by the way. Somebody involved in their life, monitoring their training, helping them with accountability, helping them to deny. Did you know you can't deny yourself on your own? You can't. I can't. The spirit is willing the flesh is weak. So age three, age four, started running, and my dad was chasing me, and all my older brothers were chasing me. So that made me really fast. And then 
and just a life of denial all through junior high. And why all the other kids are going out and having fun and staying up late and doing all these other things. I was training and eating right and exercising and going to the weight room and working with my dad and working with my brothers and working with my trainer. And, and I enjoyed it and was trying to honor God in the midst of it all because she's a Christian. She won a couple gold medals recently. But it was a life of rigorous training for years and years over a decade. What do you need? You need discipline. You need discipline. What do you need to discipline most? You need to discipline yourself, your desires, your body. And that's Paul's argument here. Deny yourself. Run, run the Christian life that you might win. You guys, you Corinthians are running the race all for yourself. It's all about you. How smart you are, how knowledgeable you are, how puffed up you are, how great you are, your liberties, your theology. You, give, you don't even care about the people around you that you're hurting. Run it in such a way that you will win. And that is by self-denial. Verse 25, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control. There it is. Self-control in all things. Self-control comes one way according to Galatians 5. It is a fruit of the Holy Spirit of God, isn't it? This is not human energized. This is a gift from God Almighty who gives us a supernatural ability to deny ourselves through self-control. What is our main enemy we're denying? It's not the body. The physical body in the Bible is not evil. Because... Everybody's going to have, every believer's going to have a physical body for all eternity, a glorious, beautiful physical body like that after the pattern of Christ. So the enemy isn't the body, it's what's inside the body, it's the desires of the body, and ultimately it is sin, it's the root of sin that uses the body as a vehicle to manifest its sin. So Paul says you need to reign in your sin, and you need to exercise discipline, you need supernatural self-control from the Holy Spirit. These athletes who aren't even saved... When they run in the races, they do it to receive a perishable wreath. The wreath was made out of pine needles or celery that was wilted an hour after it was picked. It's like, yippee, I won some limpy salad or celery. That was their prize. And fame and whatever else and the claim that went with it that perished very quickly. That's what he says at the end of verse 25. This is, this is a perishable reward. And look at how they discipline themselves for years and the accountability and the self-denial. That should be the ethic of the Christian who wants to be successful. Verse 26, therefore, Christian, I run as an apostle and as a, as a pastor and as a Christian and as a follower of Christ. I run the Christian life in such a way as not without aim. I am very purposeful uh, and has a plan. He has accountability, self-denial. Paul knows where he's going. He has a goal to be achieved. I box in such a way as not beating the air. He boxes literally his own body. Self-denial. Very graphic. He punches himself in the eye, gives himself a black eye, metaphorically speaking. It's not all about what I want. I deny myself in deference to others as I live the Christian life. Verse 27, but I discipline my body and I make it my slave. That's key. We've got sin living in us that wants to be our master. But if you've been saved, Jesus is your master. Sin is no longer your master, but it wants to. Act like a master. And it is, it's hard to shut down indwelling sin and all of its desires. You know that and I know that. The spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. We need help. We need accountability. We need the power of God. We need his indwelling spirit. We need self-denial. We need prayer. We need the church. We need fellowship. We need rebuke. We need accountability. I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself may not be disqualified. I don't want to be disqualified from the, the, the race of the Christian life. 
by giving into my sin and my desires and by being self-centered and arrogant and puffed up. And what does he mean by disqualified? He doesn't mean by losing his salvation because you cannot lose your salvation. Two main views about being disqualified is uh, disqualified in that he won't be used by God to his maximum anymore, that he might be disqualified and he might lose out on eternal reward from a lack of faithfulness as a Christian. And that's true. As Christians can lose heavenly rewards because of disobedience and lack of faithfulness in this life. You won't lose your salvation if you're a real Christian. But we can lose reward in heaven. And that's important to know. Another way that he might be disqualified is just that um, literally disqualified from the ministry as a pastor. That he, There are qualifications to be a pastor, and Paul was a pastor. And if he compromised in certain areas, he could not be a pastor anymore, an apostle. That, and that's the one thing that God called him to do. The only thing I want you to do, Paul, is be an apostle and a pastor. And if he disqualified himself from a lack of self-denial, then he would have been disqualified and in his mind probably useless the rest of his life. He had no purpose here in life. He betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ who called him. So with that in summary, let's be like the Apostle Paul in deference to others as we love them, not just in gray areas, but in whatever area as the context requires. And I want to close. If you've got your Bible, you can look at Galatians chapter 5. Just this, this is a great summary verse of everything that Paul's been arguing for two chapters. So, Pastor Cliff, how do I apply chapter 8 and 9? Good question. You apply it with Galatians five thirteen through 15. Let's read it together. He's talking to Christians. For you were called for, to freedom. So we do have liberties. Brothers, brothers and sisters in Christ, only do not turn your freedom or liberties you have in Christ into an opportunity for the flesh. Don't serve yourself not about you rather through love serve one another for the whole law mosaic law is fulfilled in one word in the statement or one statement you shall love your neighbor as yourself love fulfills the law verse 15 but if you bite and devour one another and that's what the corinthians were doing to each other take care that you are not consumed by one another with that let's go ahead and pray and thank god for his precious word father we do thank you for your word, we thank you for the truth in 1 Corinthians 9 that you have preserved. Thank you for the model of the Apostle Paul. Because we know he was a uh, human just like we are. Uh, fallen and finite and yet was able to be obedient to you, used by you, fruitful for you, despite all of his weaknesses. And God, we pray that would be true in our lives. God, I pray that you would help every true believer here, empowering them with your Holy Spirit, with the accountability of saints who love them, that we might be fruitful for you, denying ourselves in deference to others for the advancement of the gospel and all for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.